0: I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear updates from the capital, talk to Colin Freeman on the front lines, and touch on the history of the Napoleonic Wars and their impact on the European continent.
1: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward
0: you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy
2: for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war.
0: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 16th of June, one year and 112 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, live from Brussels, our foreign reporter and regular on the podcast, Colin Freeman, fresh from the front line and the flooded Herson region, and our usual host, David Knowles, dialling in from somewhere between Lviv and Kyiv. I started by asking Dom for the latest developments from Ukraine.
3: Yeah, well, Hi. Francis, hi everybody. I'm in Brussels here for the for the NATO Defence Ministerial and also my 30-year Sandhurst reunion, visiting the battlefield of Waterloo tomorrow, one of David's favourite historical episodes, I know, so he might have a comment on that. But in the news, so Kiev has been targeted by another wave of Russian missiles. This, is, uh, this happened today during daylight, just as a delegation of African leaders was visiting, and I think you've got more on that a little bit later, Francis. But Andre Yermak, who's Chief of Staff to President Zelensky said the Air Force had shot down six caliber cruise missiles and six dagger hypersonic missiles and undisclosed number of drones. There is confused reporting about how much was actually shot down and what actually got through. The Kiev Post is reporting 30 damaged houses in the uh, on the outskirts of Kyiv, and reporting casualties, including children. The African delegation had leaders, including from South Africa, Senegal and Egypt, interesting the relationship with South Africa, which, uh, yeah, I know you're going to pick up on, Francis. But they're due to meet President Zelensky today, and then off to uh, to see Putin in St. Petersburg tomorrow, Saturday. So. As I said, I've been in Brussels here talking to talking to various NATO NATO folk. The defence ministerial meetings are continuing for a second day in NATO HQ. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, opened the meeting yesterday, saying Ukraine's future lies within the Euro-Atlantic family. Didn't go any further than that, but said that all allies agree that it will become that Ukraine will become a member of the alliance. Now that reaffirms. NATO's previously stated position. But it is worth noting, I was chatting to a very senior NATO officer earlier or yesterday, and he told me that discussion, uh, discussions about Ukraine's membership aspirations are not going to move as quickly as Ukraine would hope. And the official said he doubted very much whether Ukraine membership would happen while Putin is still in power the official also told me the russian forces are not in a great place this is his words they still have the ability to come back and will be back as a major threat between three to five years but on the international support for ukraine the official said resolve with all with all the donations is strong i don't see any slackening off of support so on that At the Defence Minister's meeting today, one thing they've already agreed is for a new maritime centre to support the security of undersea infrastructure. Obviously, we've seen quite a lot of issues around that in recent months. And now this thing's going to be hosted out of NATO's Maritime Command in the UK and NATO says that it's going to be this, – this new centre is going to result in better coordination between allies and, interestingly, industry. So one to watch there. Also announced today there's been an expansion to – now stick with me at the back – NATO's Multinational Ammunition Warehousing Initiative. It does sound a bit dull, but as we've been reminded, aspects reminded constantly through this war – aspects around logistics sustainment and industrial resilience are critical in warfare and as this was as this is currently turning more to regeneration on the battlefield the ability to fix things and keep going and by fix I mean everything from people and vehicles right up to structures and fighting units and organizations that ability to keep going is is critical so this initiative is all about producing and sharing ammunition more effectively for the long term literally getting more bang for your buck your pound your euro and krona and all the rest of it and one more announcement to be aware of uh, a new partnership announced today between the us uk denmark and the netherlands this came out of the defense ministries of those countries is going to focus solely on getting more air defense capability into ukraine this uh, this group says it's going to deliver hundreds of short and medium range air defence systems over the next few weeks and says deliveries of those have already started. So that's it so far. I'll keep an eye on anything that comes out for the rest of the day from the NATO Defence Ministerial. And um, I'll be back on Monday with, uh, with Tales from Waterloo.
0: Wonderful. It's a fascinating place. You'll be there just two days after the anniversary of the battle, of course, 18th of June, 1815, as every British schoolboy should know. I was actually there after the 200th anniversary. I think you'll have a really interesting time. Incredibly, there are still people alive today whose grandparents fought at Waterloo. But yes, I imagine that David might have a few thoughts on that as well. Don, just before I update listeners with some political developments, and I will talk about the South African delegation particularly, I was interested on what you were just saying there, that the comments from the senior NATO official that says that in the long run, Russia, you know, over several years will be able to restore its perhaps pre-war strength, but it's going to be a long-term project. I just wondered, did you get the sense when he said that, that this was assuming that the war would end in the short term and then Russia would be sort of repairing, rebuilding in the background? Or is this something that would actually have been happening concurrently, that they would be able to fight a war in the way that they are at the moment and also be rebuilding and remobilizing at the same time?
3: Well, I mean, the, the, the comments weren't... I don't think we could pass them that way. I mean, he also said that he thinks this has got a very long way to run the, the war. Acknowledge the recent advances that Ukraine's been able to make but um but said so there's still a, a lot a lot of this left to go as we as I think as, we, as we've been saying for some some time now i mean interesting you put a figure of sort of 3 to 5 years ish I've, I've heard longer. Other people have been saying there's, there's about a decade here. And the important point to note is that this is this is just Russian land army that's been utterly broken in this. They've still got a very capable navy, particularly the submarine service, very capable nuclear forces and missile forces, the air force as well that hasn't really turned up in this war. That's still there. But in terms of the land army, the one of the major threats to European and arguably world security has been, broken here and there some folks are saying there's a window of opportunity particularly in britain so the british context is there's a window of opportunity here for say i've heard the figure of 10 years put to me there's a figure here 10 years that we could we could get out of the armored game so as in instead of upgrading the challenger 2 tanks that we have to challenger 3 which is basically putting a new turret on it i was told that when if challenger 3 was in now today it would be phenomenal but when it's due to arrive in the next 7 8 9 10 years it will be Pretty good. Now that's that's okay, but you know, do you really want a pretty good tank or do you want a phenomenal tank? And it's been put to me that there's an opportunity here to say, well, let's just buy Leopard 2 for now to keep us going for the next 10 years. And instead of upgrading a, a tired old hull, let's let's start a new program now. Take the risk that Russia's not going to be there in in a land capacity for a decade and come back in ten years' time with a phenomenal tank. Now that is not got a huge amount of traction i've heard it from a few people but it, but no, no one sort of very close to defense procurement i think it's a it's a nice idea but it's 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 very difficult if you're saying well it, 10 years time we got we got a we got a window but if that window's only three years then that doesn't count or that yeah you know, it's just not not good enough so the fact this official was saying to me three to five years is a very short time frame i think that's probably a little bit ambitious judging the amount of kit that Russia has lost and the people and all the structures and the way they've they will have looked at this and you would hope that they well no you wouldn't you wouldn't hope they'd learn from it but you'd expect professional military people to to learn these lessons so I think three to five years is, is, is a little bit ambitious but yeah there's, there's this idea out there that, that they are not going to be in the land warfare game for, for uh, quite a number of years but what of course they do have is mass and a very low moral bar with no no restriction on their ability and desire to just shove people into the fray and use their people up looking for the looking for the gaps if, if they are there in Ukraine's um in Ukraine's laydown. so yeah the kit might not be there but they've got people and they just don't care about pushing them forward
0: well, thank you very much, Tom. That's really interesting. I better turn to the diplomatic sphere then. As you say, Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, has arrived in Ukraine as part of a group of African leaders ostensibly seeking to broker peace between Kyiv and Moscow. Mr. Ramaphosa is expected to meet President Zelensky later, as you say, and then travel to Russia for talks with President Putin in St. Petersburg on Saturday. Now, on this podcast, we have discussed at length the position of the South African government on Ukraine. I won't go over all of that again now, only to say that South Africa is one of the few countries where there has been a stark divide between the government and the official opposition on the war in Ukraine. And indeed, one could say a stark divide as to which countries or blocks in which to align. So a very interesting country. And in many ways, I think it's symbolic what South Africa does and which directions they lean, Depend, uh, which can be transferred to how we look at other countries as well, because it is one of those that's on the fence. It is one of those that's on the edge. And so I think this this visit is very interesting in that context. And I'm very grateful to South African listeners who continue to reach out and offer their perspectives as well as feeding in interesting articles on this subject. Now, some are speculating this morning that the visit by these African leaders, especially the decision to visit Kyiv first before Moscow, is a recognition that they want to be more sympathetic to Ukraine. My my own view is that if that is the case, it will largely be due to international pressure that they have sustained as a consequence of their more overtly pro-Russian stance, particularly earlier on in the war, hosting naval exercises, for instance. There have been considerable reports of economic consequences as a result of their stance. Now, this trip did not open with the most auspicious of starts. There was a diplomatic standoff between South African officials and their Polish counterparts on the runway of the airport in the Polish capital of Warsaw. Polish authorities are reported to have threatened to confiscate weapons and equipment on board a South African charter flight carrying security forces meant to protect the President of South Africa during his visits. The head of his protection unit even accused Polish authorities of racism and of jeopardising the President's security It's not playing well in South Africa, I understand, but it does seem to have been resolved and the visit is proceeding as planned, despite the bombardments that you've described there, Dom, which are extensive. Indeed, Zelensky's chief of staff has tweeted this morning, whenever a high ranking foreign delegation visits Ukraine, Russia greets it with a missile attack on our peaceful cities. But the world already has a lot of evidence that Russia is a terrorist state and taming it is a task for all mankind. I must say, it does seem to me extremely counterproductive to Russia to bombard the city in this way during a visit. It's surely more likely to make the delegation sympathetic to Ukraine. Perhaps they are designed to show that Ukraine can't possibly win and that the best thing for all parties would be to agree to a peace deal which cedes some territory to Moscow because the idea being that this war has a long, long way to go. It will be very interesting to see what comes out of this. Now, It's also revealing, I think, that on the same day Ukraine is seeking to win over African leaders, President of France Emmanuel Macron is hosting Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for talks in Paris, seeking as part of that to nudge the de facto leader of the oil rich kingdom into more... Full throated support of Ukraine against the Russian invasion. So, the visit of the 37 year old, widely known as MBS, comes less than a year after his last visit to the Elysee Palace and underlines the warm relationship between Paris and Saudi Arabia, which one that has to be said has irked many human rights activists. Over their lunch at the Elysee, Macron is expected to seek support from Saudi Arabia to find a solution in search for a new president in Lebanon a stalemate that is causing increasing exasperation for France his stay does appear to be quite a long one as the standards of these kind of visits go with the crown prince due to attend a Paris summit on a new global financing pact hosted by Macron on June 22nd 23rd it does seem to me that Western powers are waking up to the manner in which Moscow and Beijing have made progress in recent years in winning around certain countries, something which may not matter so much in times of relative stability, but which counts immensely in times of international crisis, as we've seen, of course, triggered by the war in Ukraine. Now, a few other quick updates. We've heard from Raphael Grossi of the International Atomic Agency, who arrived at Zaporizhia yesterday. He says the cooling system is stable there, despite the flooding, but has urged restraint. He said, don't attack the plant, don't make the plant a military base, don't cut the external power. The fact is, though, at this stage, one has to wonder what difference requests such as this really make. Many will be wondering, surely, That more must be done on the ground to ensure nothing is done there, whether by the UN, China or someone else. It seems that words and pleading are not enough anymore. And so I think that we can expect there to be some developments on that space because I do get a sense that the international community is waking up to the danger of this. Now, uh, lastly, a couple of quick stories out of Russia. Court has begun a show trial of 22 Ukrainian soldiers who defended the steel factory in Mariupol last year against the Russian army. Zervas Said that the soldiers appeared malnourished, and Ukrainian officials described the trial as yet another Russian war crime. Dolyak, of course, an advisor to President Zelensky, he said, glossy prosecutors and dressed up jurors with brilliant smiles judge boys and girls who looked like skeletons after concentration camp and torture. Most of the 14 men and eight women on trial were thin with shaved heads. They wore dirty prison uniforms and stood in a glass cage at the back of the court in Rostov, a city in Russia, in southern Russia. They have been accused of terrorism and face life sentences. Now, another concerning story in Russia written up by James Kilner, of course, very much a regular on this podcast, is that a church in southern Russia has started teaching its Sunday school children unarmed combat and fighting with a bayonet. So this is the Church of New Martyrs and confessors in the Saratov region and uh, their programme is called The Victorious and has been held on Sunday and they say everybody is welcome but the website states that children are given drill training and work on their bayonet fighting. Classes during summer will be held every Sunday after the Divine Liturgy and there are lots of photos that we've got on our website, photos from the rural Russian Orthodox Church showing a man in the camouflage uniform lining up young children and demonstrating stabbing techniques with a knife as a priest looks on in another children are being taught to wrestle and it's being interpreted as yet another example of the militarization of society in certain parts of russia as a consequence of this war so that's where we are politically now it's time for an update from our regular host of the podcast david knowles on his journey across europe david we left you yesterday just passing through customs into ukraine where are you now and what have you seen Hi, Francis. Hi, everyone.
2: It's, it's another day, another service station somewhere, somewhere around Jozemir, I think. Maybe a little bit before. So we're not too far away from Kiev. We've been on the road since early this morning, to make up the time from Lviv. It's been an interesting drive. The last time we went into Kiev it was Dom and I, and we were slightly further north than here. So this is this is a slightly different drive, slightly different scenery, but many of the same things come up again. We've seen lots of storks. You remember yesterday how I said across Ukraine you see storks who, who sort of nest in the pylons alongside the motorways and it's 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 really it's really rather beautiful actually saying we've seen quite a few young stalks as well flying above us um a couple of horse-drawn carts as well uh, in the hard shoulder what else we've seen Uh, a few checkpoints not many military vehicles or anything and now we're getting a bit closer we're seeing i mean at a service station now we're seeing a couple of guys in fatigues and a couple of people looking looking and asking on our vehicles i think they i think they understand and works out what what the volunteers are doing yeah as you go along the motorway you'll see Every now and then you'll see people selling some of their produce and berries, that sort of thing. So it's, it's rather lovely drive. I, I can see, I also see right in front of me an incredibly dusty blue larder. so an, an old an old vehicle, an, an old vehicle that many people had, of course, in before before independence. As I said, little signs of war. Uh, let's go back to Lviv. So I was, we were in Lviv yesterday. It was, I mean, it's my first time in the city. Absolutely, if you if you get the chance to go, do go. It's absolutely beautiful, very very interesting. I mean, we arrived, we opened opened the doors of the cars and there was an air alert but the air alert was, was, was going on in the background and almost over the top very close to us there was a church where, with the priest intoning the prayers which were being magnified so we could hear both the air alert and the Ukrainian prayers which was quite a moment but it, it stopped shortly after that I spent a bit of time I left the group for a bit and went, went, wandered about spoke to a few people the centre is it's heaving there's loads of people there, families lots of quite a few couples you see, you see people in, clearly on leave in their, in their military fatigues um, holding hands, there's people playing music at almost every uh, every corner. Usually, very popular Ukrainian songs, and people gather around and, and, and listen, which is rather nice. We we also spot I was doing an interview with with uh, Dr. Sophia Dimak, a local historian in Lviv. And while we were doing the interview, we saw a column of UN vehicles pass through the square and then head into. The um, head into the, the town hall. We didn't see them emerge, so we didn't know what they are up to. But that was rather interesting. She was absolutely fascinating. We talked for a very long time about the history of the region, the history of the city, how it's changed over the past 100 years. And it, it's an interview I really wanted to do, because I, I feel like with so much of the attention, rightly, over in the east of Ukraine and on Kyiv, we don't speak as much as maybe we should do about, about the West and the Western regions and the Western cities. I mean, for, for example, I mean, she really filled in some gaps in my knowledge. I, I knew, for example, that in World War II, the, the Jews of Lviv had suffered hugely. I had no idea just how badly. I mean, it's the, the, her talking about it was, I mean, the numbers are horrific and astonishing. But I would recommend that interview when, when we do do a podcast of this trip what else have we seen oh yes but bumped into a friend of the podcast richard woodruff of frontline kitchen we had a we had a beer and chat about what he's been up to and if you don't know frontline kitchen do look them up they're on twitter uh they run a volunteer kitchen in lviv making food for dry pack food for, for soldiers that gets sent away to the front line it was very nice meeting him in person hearing about his well it sounds absolutely traumatic he was out in has on with some of the rescue teams trying to rescue civilians from the the floods after the half dam was blown and he was telling me all about that and that was uh, that was rather harrowing. But do go follow him. Interesting chap. Yeah, that, that's kind of what we've been up to. We're heading, heading towards Kiev. We've heard, heard the news of the strikes up ahead. Volunteers don't seem too phased. And we think that, although there's some chatter that we think there might be more tonight because that's what the Russians like to do apparently when there's international delegations is hit them in the are there and then hit them in the night again to wake them all up. So that's where we are we've been um i made sure i got enough international um credit so we we, we've been listening in the car to uh, the first day of the ashes and it was rather lovely hearing zach Crawley hit smack the first ball for four so that's that's where we are francis
0: well thanks david and yes here in telegraph Towers there's a huge cheer as well so it sounds as if then you're going to have quite a an interesting day arriving again in kiev are you able to talk about what the plan is after that or do we need to keep that under wraps well
2: very very broadly it's to go in the next few days and take these these vehicles to the units that requested them that need them i know i mean i, I genuinely don't know exactly where that is and, and yes of course I, I can't really say at the moment but we won't be spending too long in kiev actually which is which is a shame but yeah very looking very much looking forward to catching with some some good friends there as well tonight but that's roughly what i think the next few days looks looks like francis i mean it's a bit confused, it's a bit difficult to say to be honest the last the last few days going in have been relatively you know i can i can roughly tell you where you know, i can tell the risk assessment people where i'll be and so on it gets a bit hazy towards Towards the end of this, because of course it, it everything's so fluid and moving so quickly, and you know, these units might change their position, might, might, might move elsewhere in the line, and then and then to come out and, and get and get the stuff. So it's 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 a bit of a tricky one to be honest, but I'll, I'll definitely keep you in the loop.
0: Well, thanks, David. We look forward to that. And just before we lose you, because I know that you've got to dash off, we we're just talking about Dom is going to see the battlefield of Waterloo tomorrow. You're our resident Napoleonic era expert. Any reflections on that?
2: Ah, oh, well, enjoy that, Dom. That sounds amazing. Only to say that what Two things, really, I guess. One, what, what finally stopped Napoleon was a coalition of international partners, many of whom had vastly differing political systems, disagreed on a lot of other things, but agreed that this particular tyrant, as they saw it, was, was bad news. And that's that's what it took. Of Britain of funding quite a lot of it in, in the various coalitions, lots of the fighting being done by Russians, the Austrians, Prussians, the Portuguese, the Spanish, and, and many, many more nations. So that's maybe one, one thing, one one little link. I mean, I guess also the other is, of course, after Napoleon... Abdicates, he gets sent off to to, to, to elba and then spends a year there. Then decides he's had enough of this. He's coming back. Lands, gets greeted by the troops, marches on Paris, and takes it. And one of the first things he does is try to reassure all the European powers that he's no threat. He just wants to stay in France, remake France, and not a single person believes him. There's a, there's a number of times. There's only a number of times, really, you can cry wolf in international diplomacy. I think before everybody stops believing you. And I, I, I wonder. I wonder, therefore, what the reaction of the African delegation in in Kyiv right now and this evening will be when they get to St. Petersburg and and they're told something like, oh, this this wasn't us, this was the Ukrainians or something. Will they actually believe it? We'll find out.
0: Thanks, David. I know this might seem quite eccentric to some of our foreign listeners, like, why are you banging on about Napoleon? It's 200 years ago, get over it. But we live with this history, and I thought you made a very interesting point, David, when you were travelling through Europe, that Perhaps what for some listeners is just a word in a book that you've read many years ago or studied at school, people live in the places where these events took place. They're very much still a huge part of the cultural fabric of Europe and how we think about our present experience, but also how we think about the past as well and reflect on our national stories. And so, as I say, it's a huge part of uh, how we think about ourselves here in Britain. And of course, in Europe, you've got all of those countries, as you say, that were involved in the coalition that fought against Napoleon. It's still a defining feature. Indeed, one of the most interesting elements of that war, which I studied at university, is the way in which... One could argue that the the biggest transformations that Europe saw were not so much a consequence directly of the Napoleonic code, which Napoleon tried to install in the territories that he'd conquered, but rather was the response, the unity that came about as a consequence of him being conceived as a threat. And indeed, Germany was born, arguably, from the ashes of the Napoleonic War, when many of its cities had been burned and destroyed by Napoleon. And it created this sense of national consciousness that eventually became Germany. So his biggest revolutionary impact was not the one that he hoped, which was to build this huge empire, but was the way in which it rebuilt a Europe from the blood spilled in that war. So thank you very much for that. Now, we're about to be joined by Colin Freeman on the ground in Ukraine as well. Dom, any thoughts on uh, what we've just been talking about and perhaps your plans for tomorrow? Now you've had the full spread of of, of passionate renditions on Napoleonic history.
3: Dave was absolutely spot on. I mean, it it was a a fascinating period. I, I know i could barely scratch the surface just note that the uh, the, the prussians did turn up late on the day marshal blucher out on the uh, on the left flank but ultimately no no Dom, that led... was the plan that was the plan <laughs> well, i thought they turned up at four o'clock when they were supposed to be there at yes, lunchtime
2: yes but they only decided to fight because they knew the, Rus- the prussians were, they trusted the prussians would arrive this is, sorry this is not the time of the place i'm i'm getting into the car bye bye <laughs> right okay well there you go
0: <laughs> thanks david Well, we're privileged to have back on the podcast our reporter on the ground, Colin Freeman, who's really been in the thick of it in recent days, writing numerous articles and dispatches for The Telegraph on what he's seen there. Colin, I hope you can hear me okay. First of all, where are you?
1: Well, I'm up in Kramatorsk, uh, which is uh, in the eastern Donbass region. And yesterday we spent some time with a Ukrainian infantry unit, right up close to the Russian border, literally about three or four miles away, possibly, on the border with Belgorod, which is the area where some podcast listeners will be aware that the Ukrainians have been apparently backing anti-Kremlin partisans to do cross-border raids, um, which has been making the Kremlin rather worried about security on its own doorstep. The region I was in is is a, a sort of wooded, Densely, you know, a densely wooded, very hilly area, rather picturesque, really. Limestone cliffs and uh, rivers running around. And the, the task of the the unit that we were with was fairly simple. It's just primarily to hold the Ukrainian ground around the border area. The Russians, during the first months of the invasion, uh, made some incursions right into this area and, and seized much of the land right up as far as kharkiv which is uh, a few hours drive further east from where we were but then in september of last year uh, it much of the area was reclaimed as part of the, the well what well, i suppose it was the, the first major ukrainian counter-offensive where they were able to regain an enormous amount of territory very, very quickly, and which I don't think anybody thinks is something they're going to repeat with the current counteroffensive. Um, so we, we spent our time with this unit uh, primarily in um, a bunker underneath uh, a cottage in a, a rather picturesque area where there were um, sort of we drove past um hand-drawn well, wells that you, where you draw water by hand, flocks of sheep and goats is you know just very standard ukrainian farming land but you step down into this bunker and it's like going into a little militarized silicon valley really you've got these um, soldiers in there surrounded by big banks of screens it looks like a sort of cctv um security center of some sort and on these screens they monitor the entire area around them using drones which hover at several hundred metres um, uh, altitude. These drones are controlled by teams of drone operators who are actually out play in sandbagged, trenched positions, hidden in the, in the no man's land, feeding information back. And their job is primarily to harass the the Russian positions that are that that, that are still holding the border area and some territory a few miles here and a, a band of a few miles thick. Just within the Ukrainian, the, 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 the Ukrainian turf. To be honest, I, I, compared, given that we've got this background of all the talk of the counter-offensive and things being very kinetic, these guys did not suggest that this was a particularly kinetic area. Their view was that this were essentially guarding our section of the border and the Russians are guarding theirs. But for something that is, is what, what they, they consider fairly static, it didn't feel that way to me. The, the, on, on, on most days, there is shelling in the area, usually about 50 or 60 Russian artillery strikes on this particular sector, that this unit control, which to, to a layperson, sounds like a hell of a lot. And in, in the brief hour when we were there, There was an artillery duel where the Ukrainian forces spotted some Russian troops moving. They tried to bomb bomb them several times using artillery. And then the Russians responded in kind. And at one point, there was a rather anxious couple of minutes where um, they thought they'd uh, lost one of their drone operators, who then popped up on the radio again to say that everything was okay. So yeah, to to, to somebody like me, a layperson, it, it looked it looked pretty pretty bloody hairy, to be honest. And certainly, when you stepped out of the the bunker, you had to go straight to the the vehicle and then shoot off at high speed. There was there's, there's no such thing as a sort of safe space anywhere around this area because you've got Russian drones flying up above. But um, um, I I mentioned this, though, partly because, uh, as as you said um, at the beginning of the introduction, I'm in the thick of it. As far as these Ukrainian troops are concerned, I was anything but. This was but a backwater in their books. But only, though, in comparison to what they've been fighting, what they fought fought through earlier last year in August um, down around um, Donetsk, when they were apparently involved in a very tough battle for quite a few weeks, where instead of getting about 50 or 60 shells coming in on them every day, they were getting something in the region of 2,000. And they said that that was, after an experience like that, pretty much anywhere you go, no matter how kinetic or not it is, it it feels like a a bit like a walk in the park, frankly. I mentioned that just to sort of, uh, I suppose... It, gave, it, made, it set me thinking like if, if this is what they think is, is, is fairly gentle stuff where you've got 50 or 60 artillery shells flying every day, then God knows what it is like actually in the thick of it during a normal battle, let alone what it is like in the current offensive where we can probably anticipate that the fighting is going to be of an intensity that nobody has hitherto seen this far.
0: That's very interesting. Colin, you've written quite a few pieces for us in recent days whilst you've been traveling around. We'll come to the Hezon region in a moment. But I am very interested while we're talking about the counteroffensive, you wrote a piece on the exiled Ukrainian villagers celebrating the counter-offensive victories that we've seen, some of those smaller settlements being taken. Now, some people have been rather dismissive of these, but you, in your piece, talked about how symbolic it is for many, many Ukrainians, the seizure of these settlements back. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yes, the, it's not been easy trying to report directly on the progress of the counter-offensive because there are, there are all sorts of uh, difficulties involved in terms of access to the area, both in terms of safety and also terms of sort of operational security. The Ukrainians are being um, fairly, while they do try and help in general, when they don't want you in an area for operational reasons, it's hard to get there. And the, uh, last week, a few villages were liberated south of Donetsk region, and we, we, we hoped to be able to go to them. I was not able to, but we, what we did do instead Thinking slightly laterally, was to, uh, we, we learned that there was a, a government in exile, essentially some local council officials, who's, who were operating on the, on the Ukrainian-controlled side and whose territory, whose sort of local government jurisdiction, these villages used to live in. So we went to the community centre where they were where they were based, and we spoke to them, and um, they, they said, yes, sure enough, we, we were watching last monday or tuesday i think it was when footage emerged of ukrainian units draping the flag over the, the these three or four villages that they'd liberated and of course a, a kind of collective cheer went round that particular local government building although i don't think anybody is planning to move in there and and start set up shop again anytime soon because my understanding is that most of these villages these cluster of I think it's about seven or eight villages in all south of Donetsk. Most of them are pretty comprehensively destroyed. There's no electricity or gas working in them or anything else. So um, the 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 process of of reclaiming this land, these, these villages, and turning them back into places fit for habitation, it is a long way off yet.
0: Well, thanks, Colin. Now, turning to the flooded Hezon region, you wrote a really evocative dispatch from there, and there was a video as well accompanying it, which I'd recommend listeners to check out. And I'll just quote from you, if I may, Colin. You said, "...with its Soviet-era tower blocks besieged by oily waters from the blown-up dam, the Ukrainian city of Hezon is like a vision of Venice going badly wrong. The sound of shelling is never far away, and instead of gondolas ferrying tourists, flotillas of rescue boats cruise around, rescuing those still stuck in their apartments." Can you just tell me a little bit more about what it was like there and, and the reaction on the ground to the devastation wrought by that dam destruction?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, it, it, it did feel very... The, Venice is the only way I can... It's the only obvious metaphor I can... or comparison I can use, really, because it, 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 seeing cities flooded like that with, with boats sailing up and down, rescuing people, it, it's it's not something that you, you, you encounter very often. And it, it looked all the odder... Given that these the the the, the buildings that had the water lapping at their bottom stories were these old Soviet era housing blocks of which Ukraine still has a, a a great number. The the having said that, I mean the there was an exodus of resident of some residents at the beginning, but a surprising number were were opting to stay put, and I think that speaks partly to the kind of people that are still living in Kherson now. What 16 months into the war. Listeners may may remember that Kherson was the first city to fall under Russian occupation right at the start of the war, went through some grim times then, with many people um, being arrested and tortured, some being killed. The the, the economy collapsing for a while and, you know, it literally going back to the very worst days of the sort of post-Soviet period where people literally just selling food on the streets to to make a living and normal life pretty much grinding to a halt. Then since then, since the the Ukrainians retook Kherson in November, it's been shelled constantly by the Russians from afar. They've sort of taken the view that if they can't actually control the place, they will make it unlivable for anybody else. So it, it, uh, immediately after the occupation ended, I think actually more people left Kursholm and returned. And then we've had the floods, which has been the final straw. But I think if you've lived through occupation and shelling, then floods are just another thing. And I think there is a sense that while, while the floods have clearly caused a lot of damage, some of which will only become apparent as the floodwaters drain away, it is it, it is a temporary thing and it will eventually, they will dissipate eventually, and um, it's just another thing to sort of take in one's stride. Uh, there is no such thing in Curson, I think, as the, as the as the straw that broke the donkey's back at the moment.
0: Thanks, Colin. Just one last story that we were discussing before we came on air, and this is, of course, being a war correspondent, you make contacts, you meet people and encounter them, and then you try and can meet up with them again when you, when you next go back. And I understand there was somebody that you, that you knew who's now been killed in action, but has an interesting connection with Britain. Can you just tell me about that?
1: Yes, so back in May or June of last year, we were up in Kiev and we were looking for some soldiers to interview and as luck would have it, Ukrainian soldiers, as luck would have it, there was a, there was a large memorial service in Kiev's Maidan Square, Independence Square, for a commander who had been killed we got chatting to some of the soldiers who were at that particular memorial service. Uh, and in particular, there was, there was a, a sort of a youngish guy, maybe 30s or early 40s, with, with a boyish face and a big crop of unruly blonde hair under his helmet. And um, uh, if that is reminding uh, listeners of anybody in particular, it, it, it's not surprising that this, this man was late, he, he, his nickname originally was Wild Pig but his pals then nicknamed him Wild Pig Johnson in honor of the fact that he looked rather like Boris Johnson. I'm not quite sure whether that was a name that they had had for him for a long time or whether it was just because they met us and the subject of Mr. Johnson and his generous support for Ukraine came up. But from then on, he was, uh, well he, was, he, was um, he was christened a Wild Pig Johnson instead. The, the, the Wild Pig bit, by the way, or Kaban, uh, I think is a common sort of phrase here. Wild boar means, a, I think, it means a sort of you know shorthand for a, a sort of tough warrior. Anyway, the the reason, of course, that they were they were happy to give him this name and confer it as a sort of nom de guerre and was was very much treated as a you know as a, uh, I suppose you could say a backhanded compliment to, to um, Mr Johnson. I, I don't think they would have been doing it for many other politicians. I, I don't think you, Richie Sunak will probably get quite the same accolade, for example. But anyway, we then bumped into him once or twice after that, as luck would have it, down in Curson, I think twice, actually, um, in, in the in the ensuing months. And then just last week, while I was there covering the floods, we learned that he had been killed, not actually in action on the front lines, but in action of a different sort. He was operating a motorboat, sailing through the streets of Curson, rec- rescuing people and animals, and somehow, the exact circumstances are unclear, but his motorboat got involved, got got sucked into quite a strong current. And then was effectively dragged under a barge. I'm told, and both him and one of his companions drowned. Now, that that might seem, uh, I mean, as well as seeing t- clearly being tragic, it might seem a- you might think it was a bit odd that somebody could drown in what was essentially floodwaters. You might think these were just gently rising floodwaters. I can assure you, down at the Dnipro, when on, on the, the main river when the floodwaters were at their height, it was they, they were anything but gentle. Watching it, it was like watching the, the, the Amazon in the rainy season. There were standing waves three or four feet high. There were entire trees and pieces of machinery being dragged down by the, the force of the water. You could hear it roaring as if it was approaching the Niagara or something. It, it really was a powerful and dangerous river at that point. And I think his death speaks to that. But clearly, it, it also happened just at the point when um, Boris Johnson decided to quit as an MP, and yeah, so I wrote a, pre- a brief piece uh, just pointing out that while Mr. Johnson, um, you know, may no longer have a constituency here in, the, you know, over in the UK, here in, um, in, in Ukraine he is still pretty popular. Um, it may now be, what, the best part of a, a year since he stepped down as prime minister, but um, whenever I interview people, we still get inquiries about Mr. Johnson. Messages of support uh, usually delivered in, often in, in kind of half-broken English, and occasionally people making gestures um, for the, you know, of, of the the law the, the the handheld missiles, did so much to devastate Russian Russia's tank advances in in the first few weeks during the siege of Kiev, and which Mr. Johnson was pretty much the first Western leader to deliver supplies off to Kiev when other world leaders were somewhat dithering. So he remains a very popular figure here, I think. And I know he has an enormous amount of critics in the UK, both within his own party and on the left. But I have noticed that when I go home, people are astonished by by how po- when I tell them how popular he remains over here it is it is also true of course that british politicians very seldom get the domestic cre- get credit domestically for their achievements on the world stage i know as a foreign correspondent that if you go to parts of kurdistan for example in northern iraq tony blair and george bush are um, are still very um, very popular for their work getting rid of saddam hussein who was a great Enthusiastic persecute of the Kurds it 's true also in in in, in kosovo tony blair 's role there in um, in organizing the NATO bombing of Serbia to stop their incursions into kosovo he 's very popular there they, they tend not to get the credit, and that, that I think that is probably true of what what, what is happening with mr Johnson as well but it, I think we should perhaps remember that while while they 're off there 's often a great deal of carping domestically over policies that they may they, they, they may have introduced. Those seldom tend to be policies where the, 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 that make a matter of life and death. And yet over here in Ukraine I think there will be many people who say that Mr. Johnson's efforts both in terms of supplying military hardware at the, the beginning of the war and then setting a, a cheerleading example that perhaps corralled other European leaders into following suit, um, that, that I think they would say that he did make a genuine difference to the path of history over here, and, and that will be his lasting legacy rather than whatever he did in, in, in Partygate, Downing Street, and any, any other of the, I guess, quite numerous criticisms and shortcomings
0: that, that people might levy at him. Thank you, Colin. I'll come back to you shortly for your final thought. But first, Dominic Nichols.
3: Yeah, well, I'm going to keep an eye on this, um, this NATO defence ministerial here. I'll come back on, on Monday with any outputs from that. I think, to be honest, it's probably baked in by now. Those three big announcements that I mentioned this morning, there'll be some other warm words, but I don't think we're going to hear anything more definite on Ukrainian membership beyond what uh, what Jens Stoltenberg said yesterday. But but I think the additional money and the additional grouping, that four-nation grouping of air defence is a, is a significant um, outcome from this defence ministerial. But if there's any more, then I will bring it to you on Monday.
0: And Colin, I'll give you the very final words today.
1: I, I think the, the, it's, it's going to be an interesting... I'm, I'm going to be here for another couple of weeks. I'd, I'd like to say it's going to be interesting to see how the counter-offensive pans out. I do get the sense that we are struggling with a bit of an information blackout in terms of what is going on. We are getting occasional reports of villages being being retaken, which some of the Ukrainian units are putting out on their Facebook pages and elsewhere. Clearly, th- there's a, an enthusiasm for trumpeting the successes. I, I do feel we are operating in a, something of a black hole as to where they are, they are losing people. But what one would imagine that that is happening um, uh, quite a bit, uh, and there is really no sense at my end of uh, you know that, that this, this will be over. According to the people I've spoken to, that this will be over any time before the end of the year, um, at best. One of the soldiers I was speaking to yesterday. I think summed up or summed the mood up quite well. He mentioned that that after the the very fierce fighting that he took part in last year, he had decided that it was time to start trying for a family with his wife. He's a young guy, only 26, which, you know, the unspoken implication of, of course, was, well, we better start trying for a family now because I don't know um, how long I'm going to be around for. And that I suspect is is a, is a is a feeling that many of the Ukrainian soldiers, if not all of them, all the thousands who are taking part in this enormous counteroffensive along several hundred miles of turf, but those are thoughts that will be going through most of their minds, not least because many of them already have a very very acute sense of their own mortality from. Um, seeing friends and comrades wounded and injured but he said yep we know that many of us are not going to be coming back alive but that is the choice we have to make or rather i think his point was we we have no choice this is this this is this is the only way that we are going to stop russia taking over our country and we will be doing this for our future generations even if we are not necessarily around to see them
0: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine the Latest is produced by Giles Gear with executive producers David North and Louisa Wells.